Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and welcome back to Classic Camera Revival. I never thought five years ago that we would reach this milestone, but here we are, episode 100. And as always, like most film podcasts, we are usually behind by a century. So let's roll the introduction and get this thing rolling. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Okay, folks, so before we get into the main body of the show, first of all, I would love to thank every single person who has tuned in, listened, shared, joined the show. It's just incredible, the community that's out there. And for a podcast that was started five years ago to reach such a broad audience and be connected with so many other amazing podcasts, it's just amazing that we're here at episode 100 already. And even though we we aren't like negative positives that releases a show every week and are already at over episode 300, they might be closing in on 400 at this point. Um, it's just awesome to uh, to be here, be here at this point. But before we get into the old content, we have something that is brand new and our very own john meadows is joining the ranks of the mad scientists who are producing new accessories for this wonderfully old hobby tell us about your new project okay uh, thanks alex so so yeah it's sort of interesting that you know on our show because of the nature of the topic we tend to be sort of you know looking back to the past for a lot of things because it's about you know retro technology and retro film retro gear but what I'm working on is something that is uh, decidedly non-retro, and I am started work on a project that I'm calling Dark Timer because it came about, or the idea came about during dark times, aka the COVID era. And so, what Dark Timer is is an application. It's sort of a uh, a darkroom timer on steroids. Now. In my hand, I'm holding up to the uh, to the camera. You can't see it, but the other host can. This little board is a Raspberry Pi Zero, and it costs about twenty bucks. But for twenty bucks, it has a one gigahertz processor. Um, it's an ARM processor for those who care about that kind of thing. It has uh, 512 megabytes of RAM, and it runs off of a micro SD card. And so what I'm going to do is make that sort of the brains behind a darkroom timer. One nice thing about the Raspberry is it has, it's, it's designed to plug into things. Like it has what's called the GPIO pins so that you can plug electronics into it. And so I'll be plugging what's called a relay, a power relay into it that can then control our darkroom timer and darkroom safe light. Now that's nothing new. You know, Grey Lab timers and other brands of darkroom timers have been doing that ever since people went uh, electric in uh, in the darkroom. But what I'm also hoping to do is um, deal with a couple of other use cases. Like, for example, if uh, there, there are people we know, in fact, there are even people in the Toronto shooting community who, uh, who A, shoot uh, large format and 
will tray develop. And of course, unless you're shooting, you know, some ortho film, if you're tray developing a large format, you have to do it completely in the dark, start to finish. So I thought, why not have a, a darkroom timer that can also talk to you and give you, you know, okay, start agitating in five, four, three, and then, okay, and then count your agitation that says, okay, now switch to stop bath in five, four, three, to basically talk you through the entire process. I'd also like to add, add a feature to allow some voice control. So let's say you're developing a roll of film and you want to go from, you know, the developer to the stop to the fix. So I want the ability to, for the, per, the user to say, dark timer, start stop bath, or dark timer, start fix, and have dark timer respond to the, uh, the, the command. Um, also, the last couple of things I want to do is have the ability f for users to store their film development recipes. So, you know, we all have our own times, you know, we, we dialed in our development times for various films. And, and developer combinations. So wouldn't it be nice to have those stored right within the application so you can just basically tap on a screen of some kind and have it preload your, uh, your developing recipe into the application. And I'm also thinking of, ex of extending this to, to prints. So let's say you spend a whole lot of time coming up with the perfect you know, recipe for printing a negative. And that you have, you know, your base exposure, areas that you might be burning in, that kind of thing. Wouldn't it be nice to have all of that also saved in the application? So, so next time you want to print that negative, it'll just take you step by step through the through the process. Now, in terms of the actual form factor, I'm still, you know, it's early days. I'm still sort of dithering back and forth. I was all. I was all hot and heavy about uh, touch screens, but then I sort of had a uh, sobering thought of reality one morning and saying, wait, John, most responsible darkroom users wear rubber gloves. I tend not to bother, so that's me a couple. <laughs> um, uh, or their hands are wet. And so either case, a uh, touch-sensitive screen is not going to be all that... Uh, all that good. So that, that that was also part of the the, uh, the motivation for voice activation. So I'm also thinking of uh, you know perhaps smartphone integration, so people could easily you know use, use a smartphone or a, a computer and run a little web server on the device to allow people to go in and put their their recipes in for both film and uh, and paper. So anyway. That's sort of the uh, the idea in a nutshell. I'm going to start getting serious about it probably in June because June is when I will likely be semi-retired, leaving my current full-time position. And so this could be a Kickstarter. Uh, it could just be like a hobby where I do a couple to see if it works or something in between. Certainly, if you're a tinkerer and uh, want to get on board, like I might make this a community project, uh, especially if uh, if you can solder things without uh, inflicting third-degree burns or uh, or fritzing electronics, hit me up, jgmeadows.gmail.com, and uh, maybe we can get you involved. So basically, stay tuned. I should have another update on uh, Project Dark Time later in the summer. Awesome. 
So speaking of community, the one thing that we did have was um, a some of our listeners came and submitted their um, their own reviews of their of their favorite camera. So we're going to listen to the first couple now. So our first two reviews come in from our fellow Canadian podcasters, Sherry and Jake from Embrace the Grain podcast. And if you don't already listen to their show, I do highly recommend giving them a listen. They bring a unique podcast to the table and have interviewed some fantastic film photographers. So I will hand it over to Sherry and Jake. Hi, this is Sherry and Jake from Embrace the Grain Photography Podcast. We're calling in to review a couple different things. Um, On my end, I don't have any favorite gear to review. I just couldn't pick. It's like picking your favorite child. You just can't quite do it. (laughs) So instead, I am going to uh, review a project. Uh, For the past three years, I've been involved with the Trugal Film Project, a project where your gear cannot cost over $50, and your film is to be some of the cheapest or frugal that you can get. And you have to shoot one roll per month. One year, we used the same film all year. One year, we did quarterly and chose a film that everybody shot at the same time and this year we are doing it on a Facebook group instead of the private website and we are doing six months of one film stock and six months of another of your choice and the camera that you use is also your choice you can use a new one every month you can use one every two months you could use the same one all year long that's totally up to you and it's been a lot of fun um, when we swapped over to the Facebook group we had a lot of new members join in and it's been really awesome uh, Jake you're also involved in the new Facebook format what have been your thoughts on that yeah I, I am involved in it's been an absolute blast so far. Um, I'm actually falling a little bit behind. I haven't started my uh, February roll yet, but uh, I uh, I actually need to go out and pick up some fresh Tri-X in 120 because I actually ended up selling two of my frugal film cameras, but uh, it happens. But uh, no, uh, it's it's been a it's been a great time so far, and I. Uh, I look forward to shooting some color in the spring. Well, don't feel bad. I haven't started my role for February yet either. And there aren't many days left, so we'll have to get moving. <laughs> no, yeah, February is a short month. It is, it is. Um, you also wanted to talk about you were able to pick a favorite child. Let's hear about that. Yeah, well, I don't know if I would say favorite child or not, because, uh, you know, there's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's really hard to pick a favorite, but uh, yeah, I was uh, I was recently uh, fortunate enough to uh, be gifted a Nikon FM3A, and uh, I've had the opportunity to put a couple rolls through it so far, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. It's uh, 
I guess if you're familiar with the FM2N, it's a very similar camera, except it kind of takes uh, a couple really nice features from the FE2, like the uh, the auto exposure lock and the aperture priority mode. But uh, I guess the impressive thing about the FM3A is it's uh, electronic uh, mechanical hybrid shutter. So you do get aperture priority like the FE2, but like the FM2N, the uh, the speeds from one second to one four thousandth of a second is totally mechanical. So it's uh, it's a camera that I uh, that I look forward to uh, to shoot for many years. Awesome. Well, guys, I guess that's all from us. I hope your next hundred episodes are just as awesome as the past. Yeah, congratulations, guys. That's a uh, one hundred episodes is a great achievement. Bye for now. And we're back. So, um, in addition to uh, old cameras, we are also going to be talking about old developers. And sure. There's Rodinol, which has been around since like 1898, but there's something a little more common that probably everyone has tried before or used before or was even their first developer, and that is Kodak D76. And our resident D76 expert is Bill Smith. Thanks, Thanks away, Alex. Bill. Thank you, Alex. Um, D76, American ID-11, or ID-11, which is British D-76, a developer that's been around for a century. If you have taken a high school darkroom course, you've used it. If you've handed off black and white film to a lab uh, at some point, chances are they used it. It is, uh, well, just for the sake of our my little segment, I'm just going to call it D-76. It is considered a standard developer, a baseline uh, used for processing any uh, new black and white films that hit the market. And yes, there have been new ones that have flown out or been reintroduced. It is a forgiving developer. Mixing it up is pretty easy. Just uh, you want some really hot water. You just follow the instructions and then it's like basically, for example, if you buy a a 3.8 liter D76 pouch, you mix up three liters of super hot water, you pour in the powder, you mix the powder up till it dissolves, and you put in one and you put in the remaining 800 mils of water water at room temperature, and that finishes it off. You decant down into your bottles, you let it cool down to room temperature, you are away to the races. The other thing with D76, you can use it as a stock developer. So you can reuse it over and over again. You can even replenish it or you can cut it down like the way I do. I go one to one. So one part developer uh, stock solution, one part water. And uh, that is by mainstay. And I get a pretty good life lifespan out of the developer before I've got to um, mix up a new batch. I've been using D76 a fair bit over the past few, I would say month and a half. Because uh, I started because the the light's getting better, I've been sort of switching to 100 ISO film, so I've been messing around with Orwell UN54 again, and I'm I just I've just fallen off the the chair with the results I've gotten. Also, if you cannot find D's 96 in your neck of the woods, or just can't wait for since still to be replenished when they run out and you're processing, say Ferrania P30, 
D76 is a good substitute uh, at about 13 minutes and change at 20 degrees Celsius. Mm. And you get really nice results. So it is possible, you know, if, you, if you're in a pinch and you need sort of like a cinematic look uh, with cinematic film, D76 can uh, take care of you. And the other thing is price. D76 is not expensive. For example, I, I'm, I'm quoting Canadian dollars here, uh, Burlington Camera, you can get a, a pouch of D76 for yeah, about $13 and a bit. And if you're feeling a little splurgy, you can buy ID11, which is exactly the same chemical. The process to mix it up is slightly different because there are two powders instead of one. But for $15 Canadian, $15.95, you get five liters. So you get more for three extra dollars. So I tend to lean more for the ID11, even though it's a two powder uh, mix up regime. I'm willing to put up with that. And, um, and it goes just a wee bit further. The other thing is just so easy to use. And there's so many recipes out there. It's not like worrying like with Pyrocat HD or some of the more lesser, uh, more exotic developers out there. D76 won't steer you wrong. Now, granted, with some film emulsions, some of the developing times are on the long side. But that's okay. You just got to remember, steady she goes with the ag agitation regime, and you'll be okay. With D76, too, I think you mentioned it, Bill, but um, it's not necessarily a pet peeve. It is a pet peeve of mine, I suppose. But um, D76, um, my one pet peeve about it is after you mix it up, you got to let it sit for 24 hours, right? Has that been your experience? Yeah, I do that. But again, it's it's sort of a situation... Uh, you know, some advanced planning. Like say, for example, I've, I'm going to be shooting on the weekend. I've run out of D76. I'm rolling with a bunch of, say, Fomopan 100 or some other classic cubic grain film. And I think, oh, yeah, I need to process. I mix it up Thursday night. So what you're saying is I need to be a better planner. You can get a plan a little bit ahead, but that's just the Virgo in me. I tend to think things ahead a little bit as opposed to, oh, I think I'm going to do this now. Oh, I, oh, I, wait, had I can't to, do that. <laughs> I, I did manage to use D76 right off the bat um, only once. And I cooled it down rapidly by sticking the jug in a snowbank. <laughs> okay, that works. <laughs> only for the winter. Deadline. <laughs> And I was going to say that recently, um, like I have a couple of um, really old pouches of the D76 powder. Like we're talking probably, they could be as old as 40 years old based on the packaging. And so I decided, well, let's mix one up. It's powder. Let's see if it's still good. The bag had not broken or the pouch hadn't broken. So I mixed it up and I also used it the same day. I just let it... Uh, cool off for a few hours and then I was mixing it one to one so I just you know put cold water in to get it to temp and yep. it worked uh, just fine and I don't say about D76 I'll show my age here you know I learned I learned how to develop film in in my high school art class and um, I developed my first roll of film in uh, 1976 which is sort of uh, appropriate nice. for D76 mm. and the and, thing is we're talking about the two main brands here, which is Ilford ID11 and, of course, Kodak uh, D76. Legacy Pro has a their clone version, which is L76, which is basically the same product. That's right. And, FPP and I, has their own. They have FPP76. 
And I think photographer's formulary has one too. I don't know if it's still in production or not, but it's like a two bath version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, D seventy six is in my book the other road, road the other road and all. Oh, I know. Yeah. And yeah, it's like you can't really go wrong with that. Yeah. And, and it's if interesting. You, want, it's- you can mix it up yourself. You can buy the raw chemistry, right? It's metal hydroquinone and um, and hydrosodium sulfate. Yeah. yeah, it's basically D23 with the, with the hydroquinone added. Yeah, it's D23 on meth. Yeah, <laughs> that's, one, that's one way to put it. Which is something to be said about the film photography world, because D76 is generally the standard to which other developers are compared. Yes. You know, it's uh, especially code in the Kodak lineup. It, you know, you get a batch of Xtol and then they compare, uh, you know, like tonality and tonal range and things like that in comparison mm-hmm. To D seventy six, which is uh, which is interesting. So I think you know what I agree with you. It's a great all around general purpose developer. You can yep. push with it. You can pull with it. There are obviously other choices out there when it comes to pushing and pulling, but it'll do it all. Yeah, and also to address the big yellow elephant in the room, recent production batches of D seventy six that are coming from Kodak's newest. Um, chemistry source, Sino Chemistry out of um, Sino Chemicals out of China, they are mixing up brown. And it looks ugly, but I can assure you it works. So if if the color of your developer, um, all I recommend is that after you do the developing and before you put in your stop bath, run it through some running water for about a minute and that'll sort of loosen everything up, so you don't impart um, impart a bit of a stain onto your uh, negatives. But I've I've used it; it works fine. It doesn't change any times, and by diluting it one to one, you also help reduce that that brown color. So, speaking of um, Kodak, James, you have an old camera from um, the uh, Toronto plant. Yeah, well, I mean, it wouldn't be the 100th episode if we didn't actually talk about a camera that is exactly 100 years old. Not that this particular line of camera is 100 years old. It's the um, it's a Kodak number 1A Autographic Junior um, that was produced from 1914 to 1927. This particular one, this model that I have, I believe, um, and I'll tell you why I believe that, hit the, uh, hit the streets... Um, at least after 1920, which I'm hoping maybe 1921. Um, but before I get into, you know, some of the things that I look at when I'm trying to um, determine the uh, age and vintage of a particular camera, I'll, t- I'll tell you a little bit about this thing. It's a folder. Uh, it's a, uh, a 116 camera uh, that uh, will produce you, if you had 116 film, would produce you uh, a negative size of six and a half by 11 centimeters. So, um, basically large format-ish in your pocket. Um, the general focal length was five and a quarter um, inches, um, which is a little bit um, um, uh, of an oddball uh, focal length, but um, uh, it's strange with these cameras, and I guess it's a, with a lot of the cameras of this era, there are so many variants on these things. Like um, some of them come with an anastigmat uh, lens. Some of them come with um, an achromatic lens. Some of them come with a meniscus lens. Um, mine, I believe, is the anastigmat lens, but it has a bit of an oddball shutter on it. Um, my shutter um, is a Kodak ball bearing shutter, 
and it goes from F4 to F128. So if you, you know, and uh, I don't know, maybe at 128, there's no barrel distortion because it's a, a bellows focus lens, who knows, but, um, or, or a bellows camera. Um, but you can really stop it down. So, um, but I'm guessing, you know, at the time, you know, you needed those, those high apertures. Um, as you slide the bellows out, you'll see on the camera, um, there are various focal lengths on which you can stop um, the front plate, essentially, or the, or the lens, uh, the, uh, lens board. Um, and it goes from six meters uh, to, oh, pardon me, that's feet, from six feet um, to 100, which essentially is infinity for, infinity for this camera. Um, it'll shoot both in uh, portrait and landscape axis. Um, and it has uh, uh, an interesting external viewfinder that rotates if you want to nice. shoot portrait mode or if you want to shoot in uh, vertical mode, or sorry, uh, landscape mode, and essentially functions very similar to how a waist level finder uh, would work. Um, and it's actually surprisingly clear. And for 1914 technology, uh, it is a high mat ultra bright screen. Now, uh, before I get into some of the really cool technology, quote unquote, about this camera, I'm fortunate enough to be from Toronto and to have one that was actually manufactured by Kodak in Toronto. Um, whenever you're kind of looking for or looking at um, an antique or vintage camera, what I like to do is I like to find um, obviously serial numbers, date of manufacture, things like that. But a lot of times that's difficult to find in these older cameras. But sometimes um, in particular with the Kodak folders, I'm kind of holding this up so uh, our Zoom guys can, can see this, but there's a list of all the patents and the dates and years that the patents were issued on the camera. And the last patent on this camera was patented in 1920. And it's got all of the different applicable Kodak patents uh, that were, um, um, uh, I guess, installed or used in the manufacture of this camera that start from September 7th, 1909 and go all the way up to November 16th, 1920. And it shows patents in Australia, in Britain. Um, really, really cool. And it even shows like other patents that are pending. You know, really, really neat. Like if you're going to look into these uh, these antique cameras, those are like really good uh, pieces of information to look at. Uh, in terms of shootability, hey, it's a folder. Um, very similar in operation to... Uh, uh, you know, any one of the super icon to B's or C's, um, uh, uh, Voigtlander, uh, Netars, things like that. All those, they all work pretty much the same way, except think about this. Do you think you could record metadata in 1914? Well, let me tell you something. You sure can with this camera, or at least you could back then. It has um, the name autographic um, is not just descriptive. It's actually a functional description. And I don't know if you've ever seen old um, photos from that era. Sometimes you see like a little scribbly handwriting. It says, you know, grandma's uh, house 1918 or something like that. Or, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, war pictures, things like that. Whatever description, you know, uh, you know, Bobby Sue's birthday, 1914, whatever it is. You could actually record metadata on this camera by... On the, on the back plate, you would that's what you hear opening and closing now. There's a little door. And the autographic film, which is no longer available today, 
was uh, marketed by Kodak. And uh, so just a little history on the film. Uh, Eastman uh, bought the patent off of a razor blade maker that used to use carbon paper to separate shaving razor blades. So he thought, why not put this between the film and the backing paper, have this little door, and it comes with this little metal stylus. It's about, um, I'm going to say about four, three to four inches uh, long. And you would just write on the back of the backing paper and the carbon paper would transfer onto the film. And then you would just turn the camera around, expose it to sunlight for, you know, four or five seconds. It would then imprint on the back of the film. You close your door, you know, take your photo. And all of a sudden you've got some metadata recorded on your film in 1914, which is really kind of cool. Unfortunately, autographic film um, is uh, functional autographic film is probably impossible to come by. These days, I have seen a few rolls of it available on eBay. I don't recommend buying it unless you want something cool for your shelf and, you know, have a spare $150 to, you know, burn. I probably have more fun just, you know, throwing uh, $1 bills into a campfire 156 times and buy one of those rolls of films just to watch it collect dust. But um, if you want something nostalgic, you can get that. Unfortunately, the films aren't, aren't available today, but they are really cool conversation pieces. They, they take great photos. Uh, you know, good, sharp, simple lens. You know, if you if you can yeah. shoot rangefinder and lock that uh, or, or, or close that uh, aperture down, you're going to get very usable images considering it's a hundred year old technology. Mm. I remember I did a piece for the uh, film photography project and it was thanks to autographic film that we actually knew about these um, about the uh, World War One photos that this uh, particular listener um had submitted that he found in an old um, old piece of furniture, and it was a lot of the early earliest forms of the uh, the proto forms of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Yeah, I'm not surprised. All right, well, let's take a bit of a break and listen to the next batch of um, listener submissions. So our next two call-in reviews come from Keith Tomlinson, who is going to be talking about his Ricoh Matic 225, and then Tom Northernskold, who is talking about the amazing Nikon FE2. Hi, it's Keith Tomlinson here from the UK. I think if there's one camera I have to say is my ultimate favourite, it has to be my Ricomatic TLR225. Uh, not least because this is a camera I actually didn't spend any hard-earned cash on. It was a Secret Santa gift from the Emulsive Secret Santa year before last. It's not the best, brightest or um, most well-known camera that uh, I own. But I absolutely adore it. Shooting with this camera is an absolute joy. The viewfinder is really clear and every picture that has come out from it has been on point. I really love shooting this. It makes me concentrate on my photography, take my time and the shots I've got from it have been fantastic. So yeah, the Ricomatic 225 is my choice. Hello to all you classic camera revival hosts. Uh, first, I want to thank you for putting out such a terrific podcast. I look forward to every episode, and I want to congratulate you on your 100th episode. And uh, as you've requested short three- to five-minute clips on audio clips on uh, different cameras, I thought I would 
send one in. So um, the camera I'm going to talk about is one I don't recall that you've talked about much lately. At least I don't remember it. And that is the Nikon FE2. Um, I got my Nikon FE2 from KEH. And they had rated it in excellent condition. And I paid uh, $199 US for that back in May of 2019. And it truly was in excellent condition. As far as I can tell, it looks like it's in mint condition. But uh, they don't... Uh, they're pretty stingy with their ratings. So... Uh, um, I was really happy with the condition of this camera. It is a nice, uh, compact, relatively light form factor. It is extremely well built. Um, the, the shutter in this thing is just a, a, a thing of beauty, that uh, vertical titanium shutter. And the sound that it makes is just gorgeous. We'll see if I can get that across uh, through, these, through these earbuds. It's just this beautiful kind of spitting sound almost. Um, so it's a it's a gorgeous camera. It has, I think, the best viewfinder of any of the cameras uh, that I own, and I own a number of Nikon's and, and Olympus cameras. But I think the viewfinder in this FE2 is the best. That match needle system, it's uh, is is fabulous. It's nice and bright. I see my f-stop in the viewfinder. I see my shutter speed in the viewfinder. Um, and I think it really has any of the features you want. I tend to shoot a lot in aperture priority, especially if I'm doing uh, street photography. And uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted the uh, FE2 versus the FM series. Um, it, uh, it, I know folks get a little hung up about, well, you got to have a battery. Yes, you do, but it will work. Uh, you can trigger it manually with no battery, at 250th of a second, and, and bulb also works without the battery. Um, so you do have a, a, a backup if your battery runs out and you're out out and about shooting. Um, it's got exposure compensation. It's got depth of field preview, which I use a lot. It's got um, um, auto. It's got um, uh, exposure lock. Um, the uh, uh, wind lever and everything just works beautifully smoothly it's super easy to load um i've never had any issues with the with the leader falling off the the uh, take up spool um so i can't really say enough good things about this camera um trying to think oh and it takes the uh, 357 silver oxide batteries and and i've not noticed any issue with battery drain on this camera um it just keeps on going um, so, you know, with, with the 50mm uh, f1.8 pancake lens on the front of this, uh, it is a beautifully compact kit uh, that I could carry around all day and uh, really, really, really enjoy shooting it. So that's my little spiel on the, uh, on the Nikon FE2. And, and uh, uh, oh, the other thing I was going to mention is uh, if you... you you know, price-wise, the FE2 is uh, a lot better deal, frankly, than the FM2. I just went out on KEH and looked at their prices, and uh, they've got a, a an excellent rated FE2 for 289 now. So they've they've held their value. You know, I bought mine for 199 uh, back in mid 2019, uh, but they also have an FM2 that they've rated in excellent condition. And it's 160 bucks more. It's at uh, 443 US. So um, if you're willing to 
kind of bite the bullet and and uh, be a little and be more dependent upon a battery uh, the FE2 is a fabulous choice and it's just a delight to shoot and I, I really you have to see the viewfinder to believe it it is absolutely gorgeous viewfinder hands down I think the best that I've got so that's my uh, little uh, short clip on the uh, Nikon FE2 thanks and, and congratulations on your 100th episode Okay, and we're back. And uh, speaking of old cameras from uh, Eastman Kodak Canada, I have a Kodak Eastman Kodak Hawkeye Model C. It is unlike the James's um, camera. It's a simple box camera, and imprinted on the actual metal is the exact date of manufacture, and that's February the first, nineteen sixteen. Now. What's great about this camera is that it takes regular 120 film. And that's a huge plus because I can still shoot this camera today. Now, the Hawkeye name um, actually dates back to 1888 when it was first produced as the Hawkeye Detective Camera, a 4x5 dry plate camera by the Boston Camera Company. Um. In 1890, it was purchased, the Boston Camera Company was produ- was purchased by Blair Camera Company. And Blair was one of the first companies that produced a flexible film in 1892. Of course, George Eastman, being George Eastman, wanted flexible film and um, ended up purchasing the uh, Blair Camera Company and eventually started taking that Hawkeye name and applying it to a cheaply produced um, box camera that took the uh, Kodak 120 film stock. There's not much to say about this. This is a very basic camera, um, very cheaply produced. In fact, the only metal bits on it are the film advance, the internals, the internal frame and the um, and the latch pieces. It has a simple meniscus lens, a, a guillotine style shutter, and in fact, when you flip the shutter back and forth, it actually exposes. So the shutter release doesn't actually return back to the original position. So very easy to do double exposures, and for a single element lens, it actually produces a decent image. And if you're looking at our episode notes, you'll see some example images that I've shot with this. Um, I picked this up from Burlington Camera. I think it cost me like 15 bucks. They didn't even know if it still worked. Um, it was it was purchased as just like a shelf queen. And that's essentially all I do with it, given it's over 100 years old at this point. But um, the Hawkeye Model C ended up being a very popular camera for Kodak. And they even produced a special edition of it in the uh, 30s. Yeah, the 1930s. They were still producing these cheap, cheaply made paper, almost paper-bodied cameras with um, in various different colors with a big gold seal on it. And I think they sold it for like a buck. So it's just it's just a really weird camera. And I shoot it every so often again. 
given the age and its construction, I don't really take it out that much. But it's certainly fun and worth your while if you want a uh, box camera that's over 100 years old. If you're doing like a World War One, I, I wouldn't take this into the trenches. <laughs> it might melt. Oh, yeah, that's it's just a really weird, weird little camera. It's interesting. A lot of cameras from that era, like there were so many variants and and strange things. I'm wondering if it was just a result or or partially a result of, uh, you know, shortage of supplies or the technology was just moving so quickly uh, at the time, you know, that as they they changed or added something, they were kind of putting cameras together with, you know, various Mm -hmm. spare parts and quantities and things like that, that they had, you know, there was probably a shortage from the war. Yeah. But I, I, I hear you on the box cameras. I have a few of them. I love shooting it. I uh, took part in uh, Neil Piper's Project Box camera last year. Yeah. Or at least I did my best to. I think I accomplished uh, eight out of the uh, 12 months um, <laughs> before I uh, got distracted with other things. But um, yeah. I was super happy uh, with images I got from my... Uh, I didn't. I didn't have a, a, a brown a Kodak C, but I had a number two Brownie, which is very similar uh, to that camera. And mm-hmm. I was super happy with the images that that I got out of it. And um, you know, if you want to explore vintage photography for you know twenty thirty bucks, yeah, you know, and, knock yourself out. And that's and the, the one thing about the Hawkeye is that a lot of people look at this and think it's a number two Brownie. Yeah. But the real difference is that the number two Brownie actually has two viewing lenses on it. One for um, the portrait orientation and one for the landscape orientation. The Hawkeye only has one for uh, portrait orientation. But again, you're doing no real focusing, no real composition on this. So just hold it however you want. And so it it shoots six by nine, nice big format. Um, You really want to use slower film in this because it has such a small aperture and a slow shutter speed. So you really have to sort of base the film on the lighting condition you're shooting it in. Yeah. So you're okay. saying it, not, not the film to use that uh, expensive roll of Kodak Ektachrome 120. Yeah. Unless, yeah, unless, you, unless you've nailed the, the lighting conditions. Yeah, you really just want to use something with a lot of forgiveness. So... Um, I've shot like Ilford FP4, um, Pan F yeah. and T-Max 100 in it and have gotten good results. Veracrome, if you can find it. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. Veracrome's, uh, claim to fame. Like in addition to being the oh, film yeah. that will not die, it was the <laughs> film that you could absolutely brutalize mm-hmm. and still get a recognizable image, like shoot it like seven stops over yeah. and it wouldn't be pretty, but for the intended yeah. customer, if, if it was recognizable, that's all they wanted. I yeah, think I, you gifted me a roll of Vericrome I haven't shot yet. Well, Vericrome takes so much abuse. Like, you can store your Vericrome on your dashboard for a whole summer, and it'll still work in November. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I actually recently shot a roll of Vericrome pan for uh, expired film day earlier in the month. And, oh, it was, it was fog to know nobody's business i ended up shooting it at like 25 and developing it in fa 1027 um one to nine for like seven minutes and i got results they were they weren't good but i got results so some benzo triazole or something and 
I'll clear it. Well, up. that's that's why I went with FA ten twenty seven. It it has that anti fog built yeah. into it. So, so Bill, I think you should save your roll of Aerochrome pen. Just let it bounce around your trunk for a few summers, <laughs> and then and then shoot it when you turn sixty five, like your sixty fifth birthday party. I have it in the fridge right now. Just use it as a hood ornament. <laughs> yeah. Just make just make sure that your fridge is um, safe against gamma rays. Just oh, still Kenmore. <laughs> Man, they let people put anything on the internet. <laughs> so true. Okay, well, we have one more batch of uh, listener submitted content, so we're just going to give a lis- listen to that. And our final batch of call-in reviews comes from another two podcaster friends of the CCR. Mr. Mike Gutterman of Negative Positives talks about the Pentax 645, a great working man's point-and-shoot, medium-format camera. And then Mario Piper talks about the Minolta SRT-102, a camera very close to my heart because it was my first SLR. So let's give them a listen. Hello, classic camera revival, my favorite Canadians, my favorite Canuckians from Canada. This is Mike Gutterman from the Negative Pauses podcast and uh, my favorite camera. Uh, that, that is like probably the hardest question I would ever have to answer because you can ask me this uh, a week from now and I will change my opinion. But, uh, yeah, but some people might think I might mention the Leica R8, which is a fantastic camera and one of my favorites, or maybe my, my Pentax 6.7 uh, which I've, uh, you know, eloquently waxed poetic about. But honestly, I'm kind of moving to, like, I want to, like, concentrate more on medium format photography. I feel like that's that what suits my style from the way I shoot more than anything. And as much as I love the Pentax 6.7, to me, that's sort of a portrait camera for me. I love it for portraits, but I don't really want to go out and, like, take it to the streets on a Pentax 6.7. So I honestly think the middle ground might be my Pentax 645 in. The Pentax 645N, uh, I think, might be my kind of my perfect camera. It's like a perfect middle ground between 35mm and Pentax 67. Uh, like it's a, it's a, like a smaller format of medium format, uh, but you get like 16 shots a row, 15 shots a row, something like that. Pentax 645N, and uh, and the layout on that camera is spectacular. It's like it's so uh, like just knobs. There's no uh, like buttons. It like just everything makes sense on that camera. And I'm actually surprised I've only shot maybe five, six rows out of it. And one of my goals in 2021 is to shoot that camera a whole lot more because I honestly think it might be my absolute perfect medium uh, between 35 millimeter Leica R8 and a gigantic Pentax 6.7. Right in the middle of that spectrum is the Pentax 6.45N. So I am trying to uh, make a goal to get really acquainted to that camera uh, the, in 2021 because uh, I feel like that's that, that might end up being my favorite camera and ask me in a month from now and I'll tell you something different uh, but also I'll be honest with you if I had to really say like as far as like uh, uh, I'm, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go on a limb here as far as like uh, cameras that uh, that have given me some of my best results in my photography in the last 10 20 years my Hoga I gotta admit I love my Hoga and uh, 
So uh, I, I will never, ever, ever go out shooting without having my Hoga on me. So it's the one camera that always comes with me. So I don't know. Maybe that's my favorite film camera. Hey, 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 put that in your pipe and smoke it. How you like that? Uh, a Hoga might be my favorite. So, so uh, all this to say, if your peers give you grief when you go out on the town with an easy partner named Hoga, they have no idea of the fun you had on that cheap date. Everybody stay positive and shoot some cool film photos. Hey Alex, it's Mario Piper from the Gen X Photography f- Photography Podcast. Excuse me there. Um, I was uh, listening to your episode um, about Mike Ekman a while back and want to say thank you for uh, interviewing him. Um, reading his blog actually led me or helped me to decide to buy the Konica 3A rangefinder. It's a beautiful camera. Um, but that's not the camera I'm going to talk about. You asked us to call in about our favorite cameras, and so that's what I'm doing today. Um, my favorite camera is the dun 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 <laughs> Minolta SRT 102. Now I know it's not a flashy camera. There's there are a lot of you know so-called or uh, quote unquote cooler cameras, more obscure cameras, or cameras with more. Uh, I don't know, just a ritziness about them. But the Minolta, to me, represents just something awesome about photography. I'll go into a couple of things why I like it. One of the things is um, just my history with Minolta, which isn't that long, obviously. I haven't been into film photography for much over a year. But when I first uh decided that I wanted to try want wanted to try film photography I was coming from the Fujifilm X100 and that's a very rangefinder-esque like camera so I was searching online for rangefinder cameras I'd done so for a number of years and just never bit the bullet until 2019 and I ended up getting buying off eBay the uh uh Minolta Hymatic 7S now I purchased purchased it, but before it came, I saw on Facebook Marketplace a Minolta SRT 101, and it was you know within a couple of miles from my place. So I went and looked at it. It was twenty dollars. Came with a, a 135 millimeter lens, and I was smitten. <laughs> it was everything that the Fujifilm was, except for a different style of camera. But as far as build quality, uh, knobs and dials made out of metal. Uh, fully mechanical, heavy, chunky, well-built. I-, I loved it. Now, this particular camera had a little bit of fungus in the lens, but that's all that was wrong with it. The The camera itself was mechanically sound. Um, it, it, yeah, mechanically sound. Uh, the metering was, was good. I put a battery in and uh, tested it, and it was fine. Um, I put my first roll, actually, my first roll of film through that uh, that camera. It was a, a roll of uh, Kodak uh, Kodak twenty two fifty four, the ultra ultra low ISO one point six ISO color film. Um, and of course, the results were a little bit interesting to me because I'd never shot that film before. Um, <laughs> it, it was interesting, but I, I fell in love with both that, that film stock and with the Minolta as a result. 
uh, fast forward a couple of uh, months later, and I bought my Minolta SRT 102, which is my favorite film camera. Um, what do I love about this camera? Well, like the SRT 101, it is solidly built, extremely uh, well built, not just solid, but also pristine and well built. Uh, you look at it, and it, there are clean. It's you know clean lines everywhere. The the knobs and dials are just gorgeous to to look at to operate. There's no nothing loose about it. It's very tight. Um, it's heavy, very very heavy, all mechanical. Um, it, the thing that's di one of the things that's different between the 101 and 102 that I like about the 102 is I can see the um in the viewfinder i can see both the shutter speed and i can see the aperture because of a little window uh in front of the pinaprism that looks down onto the uh aperture reading on the lens um i don't know it's just it's such a good well built and quality camera that i i guess i just can't justify spending the kinds of money that you can get that you know people get for Leicas or for other cameras when I get something similar from a, a camera that costs a tenth that you know I there's just nothing bad to say about these these Minoltas the glass is beautiful it pr produces sharp images uh, it, it, I I am fully pleased <laughs> coming from di coming from the digital world I'm fully pleased with the results that I get from this SRT 102 and you know, I have two SRT-101s as well. I guess you could call me a, a Minolta guy. Um, I don't know. I just... It, it, they're inexpensive, well-made, chunky, beautiful to look at, beautiful to hold, awesome to use, straightforward, reliable, produce, you know, just beautiful images. So what more can I say? I love... The Minolta SRT series. All right, I'm gonna <laughs> stop, uh, you know, stop my song and dance, stop my uh, worship of the uh, SRT series, and just uh, sign off here. As always, excellent episodes, excellent podcast, you guys, um, and let's hope 2021 will be much better for all of us around the world. It's great to be part of this community. Um, film community is awesome. So anyways, thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Okay, and we're back. And last but certainly certainly not least, um, Lomography is um, known for releasing plastic cameras, cheap cameras, weird films. But they also have a line of very expensive lenses. And a lot of these lenses are based on old lens designs. And... I have one. I backed it on Kickstarter. It is a um, daguerreotype acromat that was originally designed in 1839 by the famous French optical designer, Charles Chevalier. And so this is a modern take on it, but it's built the exact same way as those original lenses. So there's two elements in this lens in one group which is incredible considering the fact that I have lenses that are like 14 elements in 11 groups. 
But what makes this unique is that it produces incredible images, despite the low low optical count. Um, it's not the lightest lens to use. Um, it's a pain in the brass to uh, focus. It's, yeah. Um, I got mine in Nikon F mount and I've used it on my Nikon F5. I've used it on a digital SLR. Um, haven't used it on my D750 yet, but I did use it on my D300. And um, you really just want to shoot this wide open. So this is a 64 millimeter lens, um, F2.9. And you really get that good results when you're focusing to about five feet. If you think the Helio swirl is new, it's not. <laughs> the uh, swirl, the swirly out of focus elements dates back right to the beginning of beginnings of photography. Like I said, this, this lens design was one of the first that was really designed for pictorial use. It wasn't a lens that was repurposed. And it was one of the early fast lenses. I mean, everyone here who shoots large format knows that most large format lenses, you're, you've got like f 5.6 as your maximum aperture or slower. I mean, I have an Ektar from the 40s that is f7.7. So having something f2.9 is pretty fast. Um, not the cheapest lens out there from Lomography. Um, they've certainly produced um, more expensive ones. But one thing that is truly interesting about this is the apertures. It doesn't use a typical aperture ring. It uses what's called waterhouse stops. And that's actually metal slides that you slide into a stop to like stop it down. And of course, Lomography being Lomography produced a series of shaped apertures that will sort of turn points of lights into different shapes. So a star, a snowflake, a heart. And yeah, I don't use it that often, but when I do, I'm, I'm always like, man, I really should use this lens more. Um, but yeah, another person in our group who has a lot of experience working with um, brass barrel lenses is John. Yeah, and I'm afraid I sold the lens, but I did have a Petzville lens that dated back to the oh, 1860s, I want to say. Yeah. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. Was a, it was also a pain in the brass to shoot because... Uh, you know, it is fairly dim. I was shooting it on a speed graphic because it's, you know it doesn't have a shutter, so a speed graphic you'd use the rear uh, the rear focal plane shutter, and it was very difficult to focus. And uh, leaning over, you know, under a dark cloth with my back killing me and my bad eyes, it's it sort of stopped being fun. So I sold it to um, a, a shooter in the Toronto area who's known for using um, old glass and getting amazing results. But I do sort of regret selling it. Like, yes, I, I'm very happy to have a Helios 44. And maybe one of these years, if, uh, if I can s scare up enough coin, uh, like Lomography, in addition to their daguerreotype lens, they also have a Petzval. Yes. Um, and, they have a whole uh, range of these. And I would I would love to get one sometimes. Interesting, like the Petsville lens, you know, it was considered the high tech next generation lens back in the day because, like, when you first started, uh, you know, like we're used to seeing anything. You know, we think that f three point five is a is a lens that's sort of on the slow side. 
if you go back to the beginning of photography, like the first lens is like we're F16, F19, wide mm-hmm. open. And so when the uh, Petsfuls came around and you could get, uh, you know, F2, F3.5, that was considered a huge, like a quantum leap forward in, in lens technology. Because, you know, if you combined, you know, the slow daguerreotype uh, film with the, with those tiny, tiny lens apertures, there's a reason they had to use head clamps to keep your port, your subject still during portraits. So, yeah. And I also had another lens, which, uh, which I also sold. I think I sold it to, uh, to Bill's brother was a, uh, rapid rectilinear. And no, that's mm. not a procedure you got when you're a 55 year old man. Um, and this lens was also, you know, it was F8, but it was sharp, sharp, sharp. And those are fairly affordable now. So if you ever run across, yeah. like, like the thing for shooting brass lenses, you have to find a way, you know, to mount them on a camera and the camera has to yeah. provide the uh, the shutter because typically these brass lenses will not have, uh, will no. not have shutters. And if you like the looks of some of these, but don't have the coin to buy like a 150-year-old brass lens, if you can find old slide projector lenses, yeah, the, 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 the optic formula is fairly similar. Like there are people who will get these Soviet-era slide projector lenses for 20, 30 bucks and sort of uh, MacGyver them onto a camera, and they mm-hmm. get some fascinating results. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've, I've done one plate in my entire time in photography and it was with a 1859 chevalier lens and just the process is magic i wouldn't do it personally because you know lots of toxic chemistry silver nitrate is not the nicest <laughs> nicest bit out there or and also or the original develop daguerreotype uh, you're developing film with mercury vapor Mercury vapor. There's also some, oh, ether. You got ether. And, oh. It was it's a just... thing back in the day that photography, like camera, like lab techs would go crazy mm. because of the chemistry. That's, that's yeah. not, no, that's not hyperbole. That was a real issue. Mad as a hatter. Yeah. yeah. Same reason. <laughs> yeah. Oh. The days before uh, vent hoods and all those things where you get, you know, mix your chemicals and, Yep. Safety, safety. Yeah. Gloves. Who needs gloves? <laughs> I rarely use gloves when mixing up pyro. I know. I'm, I'm very bad at I'm bad too. sloppy with my pyro, <laughs> my own personal protection. Yep. Well, that wraps it up for this show. Um, again, thank you so much for everyone who has listened. We, we just started this. We screamed out into the void. We put it online and people listen. So, um, yeah, this is this is all for you. I mean, we love getting together and recording this, but you're the ones who keeps us going. So, thank you so much. Um, this is Alex Lopes, and here's to episode 200. Hopefully, we'll come soon. Absolutely, thanks, Alex. This is uh, this is James Lee. I, I also want to thank. Um, all of the listeners and and my fellow podcast crew here um you guys are uh, the most awesome nerds you could ever dream of hanging out with and um and all of our listeners uh you know what we've always tried our best to uh 
put correct information out there, at least, you know, uh, researched information anyway. We think it's super important, but if you're going to have uh, a forum to talk about photography, we want to do it right, and we couldn't do it right without all of our listeners and the great feedback and stuff that we get. So thank you all very much, and look, also looking forward to the next 100 and beyond. And uh, all I got to say is, you know, get out there, have fun, shoot some film, you know, the best film for the subject is, you know, whatever's in your camera. Just go do it. Yep. It's Bill Smith. Uh, again, it's been a it's been an amazing journey so far. I've made so many new friends uh, since I came on board the podcast. And not only with uh, the Classic Camera Revival uh, crew and audience, but also with other podcasters out there. And again, I can't wait to see what happens with the next 100 episodes. This is John Meadows, and in addition to echoing uh, what uh, my co-hosts and friends have said uh, in terms of thanking everyone, I'm going to make the observation that uh, film photography, it's not just about the cameras, the lenses, the film, the chemistry, and the paper. It's also about community and shared passion and the sheer joy of it. So in that Mm. context, film may expire, but film photography never will. So true. You're here. Thank you all.